0: the Why Watch That Movie Talk. Well, guess what? We've got another movie talk for you this holiday week. Uh, the critic got a chance to see all of these movies. <laughs> I don't know what I was doing, but the critic certainly was very busy. We have... A, a, it, listen. Anytime you say Alfonso Cuarón, the critic will be there. Yes. (laughs) Immediately. And he did get a chance to see Roma, which is coming out on Netflix uh, in December, but it's also being released in unlimited engagement in theaters in LA, New York, and Mexico Mexico Mm. on the 21st. So if you're on the coasts uh, in New York or LA, you'll be able to see this. And hey, all of our listeners in Mexico... You can get a chance to see this as well. But we're going to hear from the critic about Alfonso's new project that he directed and wrote. Now, the cast you're not going to be too familiar with, so we'll just dive right into the plot.
1: Yeah. Um, it's the early 1970s in Mexico City, and the focus is on a middle-class family in the Roma neighborhood. Now, the core of this family is a much-loved live-in nanny and housekeeper Cleo, or Cleo, played intuitively by newcomer Yalitza Aparicio. Mm. She patiently and quietly supports the family matriarch Senora Sofia, played by Marina de Tavira. And she does so by taking care of the kids who love her, and by keeping the house as clean as possible, which is a real challenge with four kids running around and a dog that needs to constantly relieve itself. Much to the consternation of the patriarch Dr. Antonio who rarely stays at home. He says that he has work to do outside the country. Hmm. 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 Now, Cleo's also in love, and her boyfriend is the cousin of the boyfriend of her friend Adela, played by Nancy Garcia, who also works for the household in the kitchen. Hmm. Cleo's the one who calls the shots, though, despite, uh, despite Adela's poking and prodding in regard to Cleo's budding romance. But just who is this boyfriend really? Okay, that takes care of what's going on inside the house. But what about their outside environment? Well, the country is enmeshed in political turmoil. So how will that turmoil affect Cleo and the family? Will handling the ordinary slings and arrows of life be the real challenge instead? That's what Alfonso Cuarón explores in this love letter to the women who raised him. Now for the review, in Roma, Mr. Cuaron shows his technical mastery. His camera is anticipatory at times, patient at others, and curious when needed. It scans the lengths and widths of rooms, only to pause when the action of the characters both inside of and outside of the house settles. In addition, the sound is wedded to the camera. You hear things as you hear them, if you were in the camera's position, facing where it's facing. The result is a feeling of being there, mm. like one of the family. Also, the black and white images are the perfect way to evoke the feel of early 1970s Mexico. Yes. It's like, it's like if, you, if you had really well-preserved pictures from that time that you use as inspiration for a film. It's as if you're witnessing well-crafted memories which unfold as they would in the real world. You eavesdrop on overlapping conversations, snippets of conflicts, and the like, as guided by economical subtitles. So it's like when you visit a family, and you're not quite sure of what's going on exactly, but if you pay attention long enough, you'll figure out the important parts. Plus, the women drive this film. And Yelitsa and Marina, as the beloved nanny housekeeper and the wife mother, do a great job of executing Quaron's improvisations it's their story told from their perspective and it highlights how they have to take care of the kids in the house along with how they have to deal with men who are unreliable to say the least huh. it feels appropriate and long overdue however Uh-oh. just a caution for everyone <clears throat> this film requires a ton of patience not much happens for most of it until its final quarter when a tragedy and a couple of big scares occur So I think that many, if not most, moviegoers won't have the patience for this. However, for those who do, the little things that happen lead to other little things and so on. And over time, you begin to understand the hidden meanings behind what the characters are saying and doing. You sympathize and empathize with them. And therefore, all in all, while Roma definitely isn't typical commercial fare, it ain't gravity. Yeah. It is a beautifully made film for serious film goers and film watchers. So are we seeing, should we wait until December or? Well, again, if you are someone who's really in the cinema. Yeah. Go see it in a theater as soon as possible. Oh, okay. Uh, if you're not that concerned about it, but you're like, hey, it's on Netflix. Let me check it out. You can do that. Uh, the imagery is just beautiful. So it's going to work really well on the big screen. But again, the question is, are you someone who really has trained yourself film-wise to be Mm. patient? Gotcha. Yeah.
0: Well, this is quite the opposite (laughs) of the (laughs) next film that you were able to see, and it's called The Favorite. Oh. The Favorite. Or Mm. is it The Favorite? That's Mm. the question here. Now... I have to say that this cast looks absolutely delicious. But before we get into that, it's directed by Yurgos uh, Lathimos. Um, it's written by Deborah Davis and Tony McNamara. Um, the cast, however, whoa, 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 Olivia Coleman plays the queen. <laughs> and Emma Stone is showing up, Rachel Weiss, uh, Nicholas Holt. Along with other sprinkled actors that you will know and are familiar, very English for the most part. Yeah. Now, this isn't your typical historic uh, uh, drama.
1: No. It is indeed ridiculous
0: <laughs> in, in every way that you're going to talk about.
1: Oh, uh, look, it's the 18th century in England during the War of the Spanish Succession. Hey. Queen Anne played by spot-on Olivia Colman, <laughs> is on the throne, and two women fight literally at times for her attention. These two women are Sarah Churchill, the Duchess of Marlborough, played by a shrewd and formidable Rachel Vice, and Sarah's servant, Abigail Hill, played by an aware and deceptive Emma Stone. Mm-mm. Now, Abigail is a former lady and a cousin of Sarah's, but since Abigail's father succeeded in gambling all of the family money away, oh. Abigail has to ask her cousin to get her a job at the queen's castle. After all, Sarah is the queen's favorite. She has the queen's ear. Mm. Well, since Sarah was fond of Abigail's father, she agrees to help Abigail. So Abigail gets a job as a scullery maid. <laughs> However, through ingenuity, a keen sense of observation and opportunism, Abigail works her way up and into the queen's good graces. No. But just how far up does she go? You'll find out when you see it. No. Now for Sarah, she has the queen wrapped around her finger. She's the only one who can tell the queen the truth about herself and survive. Mm. She'll let the queen know when she looks like a badger, for instance. Literally. No, no. looking quite like a badger. <laughs> also, she has to tell the queen what to do because the queen would be lost otherwise. Yeah. And on top of that, Sarah's husband is one of the queen's greatest military tacticians. He commands the queen's army. But he does have rivals. Yeah. Most notably, Robert Harley, played by an appropriately puffed up Nicholas Holt, who decides to use Abigail to get what he wants from the queen. Harley is also in league with Samuel Masham, played by an eager Joe Alwyn, who's caught Abigail's attention. But as things progress, it's the women who hold all of the keys. So ultimately, Queen Anne must decide who really loves her. Is it Sarah or Abigail? And Sarah and Abigail must prove their ardent love for the Queen, not just with words but also with actions. Now you might be thinking, what kinds of actions? All kinds. Mm -mm. So this highly uncourtly court battle won't end well, but who exactly is the favorite? It may not be who you think, or maybe it's no one at all. Uh, Now, this is highbrow fun with lowbrow tastes. Mm. (laughs) The characters are like children playing dress up. In essence, they're just bored without much to do, but their behavior is a matter of life and death. They're waging war after all, on top of being in charge of the country. Sound familiar? And as audience members, we're looking inside a fishbowl which is reflected in the many wide shots that follow the curve of the camera lens. Also the music and sound announce themselves appropriately to remind us that we're on the outside looking in. Plus the other stylistic elements work together to give you the feeling that there's just too much of a good thing here, which is absolutely as it should be. The lighting is true to the time period with natural light and a bit of candlelight at times, which causes interesting shadows and textures. The costumes or characters in and of themselves but they're actually scaled back to the period, if you can believe that, and are comprised of contemporary fabrics. And the hair and wigs and makeup are appropriately over the top. So altogether, this is like looking at an overripe fruit, which is the perfect, (laughs) (laughs) it is the perfect ecstatic for this story. And the dancing, it is not, not what you're used to seeing in a period piece. It's hands down hilarious. The one ball in the film looks like something something the Queen of Hearts from Alice in Wonderland would approve of if she lived in the real world. I mean, they thought of everything. Even the wording on screen is centered so that the spacing of the letters is slightly off. So director Yorgos Lanthimos and his creative team get the job done. Their execution, for the most part, is crisp, and the actors rise to the occasion. Olivia Colman is so believable as the queen, who's hobbled and unsure and petulant and aware yet unaware and helpless and childless and in grief. And as a counterpoint, Rachel Weiss is so smart and assured and dangerous. Mm. What about Emma Stone? No. Well, she does a great job of conveying just how calculating Abigail is, along with how great she is at hiding those calculations. And the supporting cast is chock full of people who get it. Plus, the script gives them so much to work with. There's lots of wicked humor here, which is gasp-inducing at times. However, amidst all of that, there is something serious that explains the queen's poor health. She suffers from gout and mental state. I mean, why does the queen have a bunch of rabbits in her bedroom? Thankfully, Coleman and Stone land that moment, which happens during the middle of the film. And that's important because it helps to ground the film just enough in the midst of all the nonsense so that the eventual ending, which certainly isn't funny, is fitting. However, despite all of those superlatives, I have to say that this film could be a bit shorter. The ending could have been clipped a bit, but I'll be lenient and say this. Everyone here knew they were onto something, so this is what I imagine they said to themselves. Here they go. They said, "Hey, I'm going to enjoy making <laughs> this. And why not?"
0: Ooh, sounds like something you should race, gallop, or, you know, fly to the theater to see. <laughs> now, you did see another movie that is Quite even more opposite. I think each movie we reveal, you couldn't get more and more opposite. And we're talking about Shoplifters, which you were also able to see at the New York Film Festival. And it also comes out this um, week, if you want to check it out. You probably, you you may find it in a theater near you, but you might have to hunt around a little bit. It's directed and written by Hirokatsu Kurida. I probably did not pronounce that right, but that's the best (laughs) I've got. And a very, um, maybe not a well-known cast to us, but I hear they're very endearing.
1: Yeah. Uh, And so in this movie, we're in Tokyo. um, And a man and what appears to be his son enter a grocery store on a mission. Mm. They need to go shopping, of course.
0: Oh, okay.
1: But they have no intentions of paying for anything. (laughs) now they're experienced shoplifters and together they're a well-oiled machine communicating through looks, taps on the arm and back and other codes. so for the upteenth time they succeed in getting what they need without ponying up any money Mm. after all, as long as the store doesn't go bankrupt, no harm no foul (laughs) also, until someone buys a product, no one owns it anyway (laughs) (laughs) now After their successful outing, they walk back home. And on the way, they encounter five-year-old Yuri. Hmm. This isn't the first time they've seen her out and about. And the man, named Osamu, decides that they should take her home with them. It's freezing outside. However, Osamu's son, Shota, who seems more like Osamu's friend, isn't so sure. Regardless, they invite Yuri to come with them. And when they arrive home, they introduce Yuri to the rest of their family. There's grandma. Mm -hmm. There's Osamu's wife, Nobuyo. Mm -hmm. And there's Nobuyo's sister, Aki. Mm. And boy, what a family this is. They constantly chat about all kinds of things as they eat. (laughs) And they have no problem questioning and picking at each other in the way that close families do. Mm. But throughout their pattern, you can tell that everyone's worried about Yuri. After all, she's very thin and seems to have been hurt physically. Mm. Even still, she must have parents, right? So Osamu and his wife Nobuyo walk Yuri home after dinner. But just how do they return the child? They don't want any trouble. So they decide to leave her at the doorstep of her home, ring the bell, and run away. (laughs) After they make that decision, though, they overhear Yuri's parents arguing. And they find out that her parents clearly wish they had nothing to do with each other or with Yuri. Aww. This breaks Nobuyo's heart. So she decides that they should take Yuri back home with them. Oh. Hey. Mm-hmm. so over time yuri becomes a cherished part of their family for the adults shoda takes a little more time to warm to her also osamu and shoda train yuri in the art of shoplifting
0: oh lord
1: and everyone gives her the care that she never received from her parents after all as nobuyo tells yuri the best families just might be the ones you choose for yourself <laughs>
0: or the ones you steal. Uh... Uh,
1: now, keep in mind that this family is very poor, so shoplifting isn't enough to sustain them. And while they live off Grandma's pension, that's not enough either. Uh, as a result, Grandma has her own money-making schemes. <laughs> Nobuyo works at a factory and steals from it. <laughs> and Osamu is a day laborer whenever he can get work, which is an orphan. Nobuyo's sister Aki also earns a living, but it's completely different. From factory work and being a day laborer i can tell you that mm. in regards to the kids they need to go to school right well no actually because as showed repeats to yuri kids go to school only when they can't learn at home and just mm. who told them that mm. hmm. so there's something that's definitely up with this family and that something starts to reveal itself after yuri is reported missing months later Oh. Also, us on the cusp of puberty, so he's changing physically and mentally. He's beginning to see the adults in his life as people, which along with other events, leads him on a path to possibly breaking up this family once and for all. Oh. Review time. Now look, from the beginning of Shoplifters, writer-director Koreyeda Hirokazu shows that he understands how to frame a scene. The camera's always where it needs to be. Now this is vital because tiny bits of information, important information, about the characters are revealed crumb by crumb, scene by scene. In addition, Hirokazu's script is so specific. This seems like a real family, not a generic one, which makes reading the subtitles worth it. Yes, I didn't mind doing that at all and even liked doing it at certain times. Hmm. Also, the actors have such a great chemistry with each other. They're always in sync. So, as you get to know the characters, they seem more and more like real people. Plus, while their living circumstances and backstories aren't the best, to say the least, there's always a sweetness, along with quite a bit of successful humor during the film's first half, that's welcome. It brought a smile to my face. So, by the time you get to the second half of the film, when things start to turn for the worse everything has been earned that's that half slower pace has been earned though it could have moved a tiny bit faster along with its ensuing plot points so overall while this isn't an absolutely perfect film it's certainly close enough no it's an endearing and effortless account of a family of criminals and misfits and you can't help but love them despite their flaws and feel your heart break as the tragedies that lurk just beneath the surface reveal themselves. This was certainly a pleasure to watch.
0: Oh, well, you heard it here. The critic got a chance to see three very different movies, and they're obviously coming to a theater near you in three different ways. Either your big theater with Roma or the small, and of course, the favorite and shoplifters. You may have to dig around a little bit to find them at a theater near you. And again, keep locked here at Why Watch That. We've got all kinds of TV shows and movies for you to watch.